We'll be in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, a very special passage of Scripture, a famous passage of Scripture. It's a passage that if you grew up in church, it was one of the first stories about Jesus that you learned. By the way, if you're a child in the congregation, there are children's bulletins in the back. If you need one, raise your hand and I'll have one of the deacons bring one to you. Any of you kids need a child's bulletin? There's two. Okay, thank you. Uh, so it's John chapter 6. The theme of the Gospel of John, as you've heard many times already, is what? Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. And if you believe in Him, you'll have eternal life. That's the theme of John. And John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is a master storyteller. And we see this especially in chapter 6. He, he paints a verbal picture that's just absolutely beautiful. He uses some, some details that you might not have noticed to really show us an enhanced picture of Christ's work. And John has shown us Christ's glory in unique and powerful ways in the book so far. We're going to continue to see that in chapter 6. Um, the glory and the majesty of Jesus, which seems to have been kind of constrained in some ways, is now wide open. This miracle is done before thousands and thousands of people. It's public. John chapter 6, if you look at John in your Bible, what do you notice about it? Kids, if you have your Bible open to John 6, what do you notice about this chapter? Is it long or short? It's really long. It's the longest of all the chapters in the Gospel of John. Not only that, it's the longest of all the chapters in all the Bible. Sorry, excluding Psalm 119. But it's the longest for sure in the New Testament. The longest chapter in the whole New Testament. And you might think, well, the chapter divisions weren't part of the inspired text. And this is true, but... The, the folks who actually put the chapter divisions and the verse divisions in the text, they're pretty smart. And I don't believe they made a mistake. What we see in John chapter 6 is one united theme. And I hope over the next five or six weeks to keep emphasizing that same one theme, which isn't hard to guess, that Jesus is God, the Almighty God. He's all that we need. So as we go through this longest chapter in the New Testament, we're going to see that again and again. It's also a famous part of the Scriptures because this is a very notable miracle. This is a notable sign. It's a sign. This The first 12 chapters or so of John are called the Book of Signs. It's, it's a number of miracles that John pieces together in a way to show one theological purpose and theme. And of all of the miracles that Jesus did, this is the only one that's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in all four Gospels. Such is the greatness and power of this miracle. It cannot be ignored, and we're not going to ignore it either, of course. We're going to look at it. So I'll read the first 15 verses, 14 verses of John chapter 6. Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired Word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following Him because they saw the signs that He was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on a mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up His eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward Him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the two loaves, sorry, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish, as much as they wanted. 
And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Amen. Please be seated. May God add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Let us pray once again for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Almighty God, we do come to You in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask that Your Spirit would open our eyes to see the truth of this text, that You, Holy Spirit, who lives in us, would change our hearts. Lord, we cannot change at all on our own. But only you can do the work. So we pray that you would do that work. That the truth would not just be an intellectual knowledge of truth, but it would actually be a truth that penetrates to joints and marrow to our very heart. In Jesus' name, Amen. Kids, I don't know if you noticed, but this is a special text for children. Why do you think this is a special text for children? Was there a child in this particular passage? What did he do? What did this boy do? Someone tell me, one of you kids. Right, he had a lunch. And he gave his own bread and his own fish to Jesus, to the church. It doesn't matter how young you are. God will use your gifts today. You don't have to wait till you're a grown-up to be used by God. He'll use you today. Everything that you have been given by God, all of your gifts, all of your love for Jesus, all of your love for your parents, your obedience to your parents, He'll use all that you have for Him. So this is a special passage for children. God used this little boy with his lunch. And He used it to perform a mighty miracle. It's also an important passage for adults and for really all of the church, young or old, that Jesus is our provider. He gives us our daily bread. We're going to first look at the problem that the disciples faced. We'll look at the test of faith, what to do with this problem. And then we'll look at the abundant provision of God. Uh, This is a picture of everyday life in in some sense because we all have problems every day. And God is asking us, what will you do? Are you going to try to fix this yourself or are you going to turn to Me and trust Me in prayer? Ultimately, we see that the King will always provide. I have some friends who have some sheep and I've known other people who have owned sheep. Uh, You know, sheep without a shepherd... They're probably going to die. Isn't it interesting that God always calls, often calls His church the sheep of His pasture or the people of His pasture? The sheep of His hand. Sheep need constant care. We need constant care, don't we? If the shepherd isn't watching over the sheep, they're going to be devoured by predators. They're going to die from the elements. Again, sheep aren't smart. They're going to starve or die of thirst because they don't go to the right place for food or they eat the wrong food. They'll rot with disease because they're not very clean in and of themselves. These problems between a sheep and a shepherd really are the the problems of the church. We need to trust our Good Shepherd. He's the only hope we have for any safety any sustenance, any good provision, any tender care. Jesus is teaching the church and He's teaching His disciples to trust Him no matter what the problem. Well, what was the problem? Look at verses 1-4. through Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. It's It's a part of the Sea of Galilee close to the city of Tiberias. And it's in a remote place, we read in Matthew and Luke. It's in a remote part of the country. This is some time after the events of chapter 5 when Jesus is in Jerusalem. Now He's he's up in Galilee. And a large crowd is following Him because they saw the signs. They saw the miracles He was doing to the sick. He was healing the sick. 
think there were two things we learned from these short verses. First of all, because many people followed Him, they wanted to see something. They weren't following Him necessarily because He was the Messiah. He was doing amazing things. He was healing people. They wanted to see the signs. Of course, this is one of the things we see again and again in the book of John, the Gospel of John. They desire to see the amazing performance rather to embrace the Lord Jesus. They want all the benefits of the covenant family without actually embracing Christ. They want to keep Christ at a distance. And this attitude, of course, persists today and it was a problem in the early church as well. People who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then they reject Christ. In other words, they're, they're part of the community, they're around the community of God, but ultimately they don't want Jesus. They just want to do what they want to do. Well, Jesus knows now, and He knew then, those who are really His. We learned this in John chapter 2, in the very beginning of this Gospel. Many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing, but Jesus on His part, did not entrust Himself to them. Again, it's the same word as believe that you see earlier. Many believed in His name. Jesus, on His part, did not believe in them because He knew all people. So He's being followed by these crowds, these crowds of unbelievers, it seems. And that's okay. I mean, it's part of the program. It's part of the plan. But there's a more positive way to look at these, these things as well, and I believe they're both true. We see in these remarks the willingness of the people, the crowds, to follow Jesus even to extreme places, to great extremes. And these aren't stupid people. I mean, we look back then at these, these, these ancient people and we think, wow, they're just not very smart. It's not true. They're the same as us. And yet, they sacrificed their comfort to go be with Jesus, to follow Him, regardless of what the reason was. Many, of course, probably did have true faith in Christ. So how did they end up so far from a city, so far from any food source? How did they end up with their families, the children, the wives? Well, they were following Jesus. They're willing to endure hardship and inconvenience to hear the Word of God. Willing to sacrifice to be with Him. And this, of course, is a lesson for the modern church as well. What are we willing to endure to worship the Holy God? Calvin says of this passage, the slightest interruptions immediately lead us away from meditations on the heavenly life. Isn't that true? We're so easily distracted. We are full. We are fluffy. We're comfortable. But we must desire the bread of life more than any earthly comfort, more than anything else. It's one of the things we'll see in this passage. So Jesus goes up on a mountain. The crowds are following in Verse 3 says He goes up a mountain and sat down with His disciples. You may remember this from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went up on a mountain and sat down. His disciples came to Him and He began to teach them, saying, and then He preached His sermon. It's the same, the same pattern of going up and sitting down with His disciples. You can imagine the crowds trying to get around Him to hear what He's saying as He's teaching. Going up on the mountain probably also is meant to turn our minds to Moses who went up to the mountain to God to be with God. So besides healing the sick, we see Jesus also teaching. The other Gospels affirm this. Just want to remind you too that Jesus is doing real ministry. He's actually interacting with people, with individuals, as a pastor is supposed to do, as elders are supposed to do. He's interacting, personally interacting with people, instructing and teaching, showing them the love of God, meeting the needs of the people who had come to him. This was selfless service. This is one of the most famous days in the life of Jesus that's so heavily recorded. We'll find out later, like after feeding the 5,000 this night, the day isn't over. He has much, much more to do because He's serving His people. And this is the example for every pastor since 
the time of Christ. But we learn also that the feast of the Passover was at hand. Again, we're building to this, to this problem. Uh, John is giving us another detail. And again, it's not a throwaway detail. The Passover is at hand. Why would he tell us that? Well, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But these aren't wasted words. All that Jesus does in chapter 6 is, is kind of seasoned and flavored by the Passover. The Passover pointed to Him, of course. The food they ate during the Passover pointed to Him. The roasted lamb, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, it pointed to Him. And of course, the wilderness journey of the Israelites and leading and guiding by the, the cloud by day and the fire by night pointed to Him. The manna from heaven, of course, pointed to Jesus. And all these things we'll learn later on in this chapter. But in verse 5, it lifts, he lifts up his eyes and he sees the large crowd coming toward him. And Jesus says to Philip, he asks Philip a question. He presents the problem. So what do we mean by large crowds in the hour? The hour, the late hour, the other Gospels tell us. It's getting late. God knows better than anyone else the difficulties involved in coming, the crowds coming to Him. He knows that it's difficult to be where He is for a crowd. It's difficult for a small group to move together through the wilderness or on a hike or something like that. This is a large crowd of people. 5,000 men. And Matthew tells us, besides women and children. So there's 5,000 men plus women and children. How many is that? We don't know exactly. Ten to 15,000 people. How many people is 15 to 20 or 10 to 15,000? Maybe like a college uh, basketball stadium. That's a lot of people. 10 to 15,000 maybe. It's a lot of people that are following him. He's on a mountain and he sees this multitude coming toward him. And it's special too that John, that the other Gospels tell us that all the disciples were around when Jesus was posing these questions. But John tells us exactly who he's talking to. I love that. When you see Philip in heaven, you can ask him about this. What he was thinking, what he saw. He looks down at this, this vast array of people, this throng of people, all waiting to see and hear and touch Jesus. And he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread? that all these people may eat. Now, of course, from a human perspective, it's, it's kind of nonsense. It's a nonsensical question. There, there's obvious, obviously no place to buy bread in the middle of nowhere. It was impossible. There are no provisions. They weren't prepared to feed a whole stadium of people. As our earthly problems often do, it seemed insurmountable. It seemed impossible. And lifting up his eyes and seeing the large crowd, he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread? Where are we to buy bread? We learn later this is a test. Tests are often surprises to us as well. We all get tested occasionally. It made me remember uh, one of the most hated of check rides in the Air Force was the no-notice check ride. Most of your check rides, and they happen every 18 months, you had time to prepare for. In other words, your, your window was six months before the end of the window. So from 12 to 18 months, you knew the check ride was coming. Then it would get scheduled a couple weeks out. and You had a couple weeks to prepare, to study, to chair fly, to fly the simulator, to even maybe practice the mission and, and fly it before you actually had to go fly the mission with an evaluator pilot watching your every move. It's horrifying. But sometimes... Sometimes there are a certain number, a certain percentage of the squadron who had to receive no notice check rides. It's an attempt to keep the process pure so that you can actually see people's real ability without much preparation. So you'd come strolling into the squadron with your coffee in your hand in the morning, thinking that you're just going to fly a normal mission. And the lieutenant colonel behind the desk says, Captain Steele, yes, sir. This is a no notice check ride for you today. Oh, no notice. Okay. And there you go. You have about an hour to get ready for your normal mission. 
and you're going to go fly this mission to the best of your ability, and it really tests your, your natural, normal ability to do the job you've been given to do. No notice check rides were horrific. It was a horrific test. Most people do fine, of course, because we're well-trained, but still, we like to be able to prepare. Well, in life, most of what we get are no-notice check rides. Philip got a no-notice check ride. Jesus just looked at him and said, Hey, Philip, what are we going to do? And Philip, in Air Force speak, he busted his check ride. He didn't know what to do. He didn't do well. He could have done much worse, of course, and we always can. But we know from Scripture that he said this to test him. This was a test for Philip. Because Jesus already knew what he would do. Jesus wasn't surprised by the crowd. He's never surprised by any of our problems. He knew what he would do. And every test has a good purpose. And God often tests his people. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucible is for silver, the furnace is for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. God is our sovereign king. He can do what he wants. And he tests us. Because he hates us? No, it's the exact opposite. Because he loves us. Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham was tested by God when God told him to go sacrifice your son, your only son whom you love. Job was tested in a very severe way. He lost his property, his family, his health. This morning we heard that Ezekiel lost his own wife. What a test. Peter was tested on the night of Jesus' trial. The key is that all hardship is discipline. All hardship, in a sense, is a test. It's meant to, to discipline our lives. To help us. A couple of reasons, I think, specifically we can look at. God tests us to prove us. To see if our faith is genuine. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Peter says, "...in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's, there's a testing to prove us the genuineness of our faith. And heaven forbid that any of us are like the, the stone or the seeds that fell on the rocky soil, who when they hear the Word and receive it with joy, but they don't have a root, they believe for a little while, and in a time of testing, they fall away. Luke 8.13. So it tests the genuineness of our faith. That's part of these tests, these trials. But secondly, God tests us also to produce fruit in us, to sanctify us. It's a good thing, brothers and sisters, when the Lord tests us. James 1, of course, talks all about this kind of trial and testing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, etc., etc. He goes on and talks about the, the merits of the testing of our faith. Romans 5, verse 3 says, We glory in our sufferings because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. Character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Testings are good. The result is good. God is refining us to make us more pure, more valuable. And blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive a crown of life. So what does this mean for us? Philip shouldn't be discouraged that the Lord tested him. He should welcome these tests. We also should welcome the tests that God brings to us. I don't say this lightly. I know that some people face severe testing. Very difficult trials that last your whole life. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So if we truly love the King, we want to be refined. I remember someone when I was young, I've told you this before, said, don't pray for patience. You might just get it. What? I want all the fruit of the Spirit, as much as I can get. I want to be refined and purified, and so should we all. 
Philip may not have known that he was being tested, but the fact remains that God wanted Philip to learn something about his faith and to learn something about God and His glory. So Philip's answer shouldn't surprise us. He's not doing well in this test. Where are we going to get the food? In verse 7, he says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed, to give each of them even a little. One denarii was a day's wage. So 200 days of wage, almost a year of work, wouldn't feed even a little bit of food to all these people. And then we see Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He says, here's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are they? I don't know. We don't know the inflection. We don't know the tone of what Andrew says. It could be positive. It could be uh, negative. But if he's like Philip, they're just wondering, this is impossible. And they have no idea how this could be solved. I think they both busted the check ride. Or at least got a lot of downgrades on that check ride. Why do I say that? Because they had been with Jesus for a long time. They'd seen Him perform miracles. They had seen His glory already in many ways. And rather than look to God as they should and as we should, they were looking around from an earthly perspective at just whatever they could find. Aren't we also like that? Our first option in a trial often is just to look at earthly options. It's just to look around. It's just to look around at ourselves, maybe to start manipulating the situation. I'll just make a few phone calls. I'll go visit this guy. I'll go talk to that guy. I'll do that and that and this and that. Rather than stopping to pray for God's help. Rather than drinking from the fountains of living water, we desire to, to carve out our own cisterns which actually hold no water. We want to do everything ourselves. We actually act like atheists. We act like God doesn't exist when we see a problem. And we forget that Jesus already knows what He's going to do. That's what this text says. Jesus already knew what He was going to do. And knowing what we know about God, is there any circumstance in your life where the same thing isn't true? Do you think anything is uncertain in your life? Do you think Jesus doesn't already know what He's going to do? He does. We see insurmountable problems, very difficult problems, or any problems really. They might seem impossible, but all along our Lord knows what He's doing. He's leading us. Deliberately leading us. Kids know this really well. Kids, do you know this song? Look at the pastor for a moment. He's got the whole world. Where does he have the whole world? In his hands, that's right. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me brother in His hands. He's got little bitty babies in His hands. He's got it all in His hands. There's no one else who can help us. He is so mighty, so powerful, and He's preserving and governing all His creatures and all their actions. He's got all the world in His hands, saints. And it's to a glorious end. doesn't mean there won't be difficulties on the way, but it does mean that He's got it all. In his hands. He knew what he was going to do then, and he knows what he's going to do today. So now that we know that all of life's difficulties are in some way a test, and that God knows what he's going to do, it gives us great confidence. He's trying to teach us to trust him, he's trying to, to expose our own lack of faith so that we might trust him more deeply. He's sanctifying our souls. He's enabling us more and more to die into sin and to live under righteousness. He's destroying our idols. He's causing us to lift our eyes up to God instead to look instead of looking at the world and ourselves. And in every situation, we have to look to the One who has the whole world in His hands. The biggest trial in your life may seem impossible. But we're... What's encouraging is that we have the biggest God, the only God, the almighty and powerful and eternal God on our side. We need to remember too that the biggest problem we have isn't some earthly problem. The biggest problem we have is God's holiness. 
Apart from Christ, that is the biggest problem every human being faces. Is There's a holy God, and He's going to call everyone to judgment. And you'll either be judged according to Christ's righteousness or your own righteousness. This is the Gospel. If you turn with me to Romans 5, we see this laid out perfectly clearly by the Apostle Paul. We think of our problems and they seem significant and truly they are often very difficult. But that's not our biggest problem. Look at Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more now that we have been reconciled shall we be saved by His life? So, if God can solve the biggest problem you have, which is His own holiness and your own wickedness and the reconciliation of those two things, He can solve any other problem you have in life, brother, sister. So this test, this test was meant to cause God's people to look to God. And look at the abundant provision. This is the last point. Our Good Shepherd, He's not stingy. He's not spiteful. He's He's actually caring for His sheep. He brought them to this desolate place and now He will care for them. He's with them. Verse 10, He says, have the people sit down. He tells the disciples to have the people sit down. And they're grouped by hundreds and fifties, Mark tells us. Jesus hears the disciples' doubts and their reservations and He just starts doing His job. He just starts doing His work. Okay, you, you failed the test. You failed the test. Okay, tell the people to sit down. I'll show you what I'm going to do. His purpose, by the way, can never be thwarted by our unfaithfulness. You think Simon Peter or Andrew or Philip or anyone could stop Jesus from doing what He's going to do? No, of course not. And it's the same today. So to this multitude of people, to this maybe 15,000 people who are told to sit down in groups of 150s by the apostles going out to tell them, hey, you can imagine, stadium-sized full, of, a stadium-sized number of people and the apostles, these 12 going out to all of them and saying, okay, sit down, groups of 100, groups of 50. It took a little while, I'm sure. The apostles and the people obeyed Jesus. Like, this is significant. This is a simple lesson, but I think it's powerful. The blessings of God flow to the obedient. The rebellious will not, will not see God's blessing. To those who obey His commands, they're going to receive blessing of some kind, of course. And the multitudes obeyed Christ. He's about to bless them. Also, I want you to notice in the, the abundant provision of God, the fact that there was much grass in the place. Kids, have you ever sat down in mud you ever sat down in a big pile of mud? Do you like that? No, I don't either. Have you ever actually sat down on a really hard rock or something and it kind of hurt? Yeah, I have too. But there was much grass in that place. Do you realize there are no parts of the sacred text that are wasted? None. How kind of the Holy Spirit to add this particular verse for John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to add this particular detail, there's a reason for it. Why would God tell us there's much grass in the place? Is it just, a, just painting a picture? I don't think so. I think it's meant to remind us of our Good Shepherd who makes us lie down in green pastures, who leads us beside still waters, who prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Every bit of our lives is under His watchful care. Every bit. Nothing is forgotten. You remember when Jonah was looking down at Nineveh and God rebuked Jonah and he said, aren't there this many people and even this many cattle besides? It's like, 
There's nothing that God isn't looking at that wouldn't be subject to His compassion. And secondly, we see that it shows the tender compassion of the shepherd. He could have led them anywhere, but He led them to a place where there was much grass. Why? Many of them were there with their families, their children. After a long walk, if you've ever walked with kids, it gets tiring for the kids and they want to sit down and be comfortable. Not to mention the elderly. It's much better to sit on grass. You might think I'm making too much of it. I don't think so. I'm struck by the tender care of our Savior every day. And little things like this. If you start to notice all of the little things that God does for your own comfort, just because He loves you, if you make an effort to notice them, you will see them again and again and again. He's a good shepherd. And by calling Himself our shepherd, He is agreeing to take on all of our concerns and make them His own. There's not a, a smallest little bit of your life that, that you're concerned about that He doesn't care about. All of our troubles become His troubles. Every detail of our life receives a divine attention in some way. Maybe to correct you. Maybe to answer that prayer. How do I know this? Well, we read that Jesus cares about birds. Little birds. He cares about little flowers. Lilies. And He cares about grass. He cares for you. So they sat down. 5,000 in number. This is the men. And Jesus took the loaves and when He had given thanks, He distributed it. He had given thanks. He blessed. In Luke it says He blessed them. Here in John it says he gave thanks. He's praying. He's thanking God for provision. He's blessing the food, if you will. He's calling upon God to bless this meal. It really goes along with the previous point. We rightly, probably all of you, before you eat a meal, you pray. This is a Christian tradition that goes back to the time of Christ and even before that, the people of Israel. The people of Israel would would pray, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Well, we pause during the meal to pray because it's just a reminder that everything we have is from God. Every single thing that you have is from God. Every good gift is from God. There's nothing that you have that isn't from God. Every heartbeat, every breath, Every bit of food, every friend, every family member, every bit of your health, it's from God. So you should pause and give thanks to God throughout the day and especially at a meal. Thank the Lord for that food. So He distributed, distributed, distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. Jesus personally wasn't distributing the bread or the fish. We know from the other Gospels that it's His, his disciples who are doing that. His apostles are the ones actually receiving the bread, the broken bread. Jesus broke it and He gave it to them. They received it and they distributed the bread. The hands of the apostles didn't multiply the bread. Christ did. The hands of the apostles didn't make it sufficient. Christ did. Jesus did the work, but He used the, the apostles to distribute the bread. And we see the same pattern today. J.C. Ryle says, the minister cannot make men value the bread. He cannot make men receive the bread. He cannot make it soul-saving. That's not his job. His whole business is to be faithful, a faithful distributor of the food which his divine master has provided. God raises up ministers and teachers who have the Word of God, the bread of life, and yet we have no power to make you eat it. We have no power for you to impart grace or forgive sins or any of those things. That's all Christ's work. But we've been entrusted to receive the bread from heaven and to just distribute it to the people as the apostles did. And note that everyone had as much as they wanted. Everyone had eaten their fill. 15,000 people ate their fill from five barley loaves and two fish. It's an amazing display of power. And everyone was full. It may not have been the, the delicate food of kings or uh, you know, seasoned fish. It was just poor barley loaves. 
yet it was sufficient and it was filling. And this, of course, reminds us of Exodus chapter 16 and the manna from heaven, which Jesus is going to reference later in this chapter. Exodus chapter 16, verse 16, the Lord commanded, gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons you have in your tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. God is so generous and tender with His people. He took such good care of them in the wilderness. And you remember Jesus Himself says He was the rock that was with them in the wilderness. God was with His people in the wilderness and they walked in His presence. But again and again, what happened? They rebelled. They rebelled against Him. They grumbled. They worshipped idols instead of the living God. Indeed, as Moses was up receiving the commandments, they were worshiping an idol. This rejection of Him, this, the God who is present with them, it makes this rebellion so grieving. You know, someone told me this morning, I had no idea, they were like, this is Super Bowl Sunday. Even that phrase just makes my skin crawl. No, it's not. This is the Lord's Day. He's given us one day out of seven for His worship. He's so generous and kind. He's opened up our eyes to see His truth. And in His holiness, He's united us to Himself by the work of Christ on the cross. And He's told us to sanctify one day as holy. Is it any surprise that Satan comes after that one day with such abomination to worship as the world worships? It's funny, isn't it, that stadiums are now being called cathedrals. The cathedral of the, the dolphins or whatever. They know it's idolatry. It's a desecration of the Lord's day. But like Israel in the wilderness, the culture built these idols and they're going to worship them. Are we going to join in? It's an outrageous abomination. I remember when... Uh, reading about the early church and the struggles that they would, they would actually encounter as Christians. When you would walk into a Roman city like Ephesus or something, there would be a place to offer uh, some kind of offering to the gods of that city. And you could bring your offering to the god of that city. This, this, a piece of meat is all they required. And then you were allowed to trade in the city. Well, if you're a Christian and you had a business, you might not want to do that. But it was a problem in the church and some would do it. They would say, I don't care. I'm not worshiping this God. And they'd give their piece of meat and they could continue their business. That was gross disobedience to give that little bit of meat to this other God, to this other deity. But how much worse to actually from there if they walked straight to the temple of Diana or whoever and actually stood and worshipped at the temple. There are many ways that we, that we despoil the Lord's day. But on this day is the day of worship. It's the day of worship of the Lord. And we are tempted to go and join the world at the temple of Diana. Worshiping idols created by the world. What an abomination. So I mentioned that. I hadn't planned to talk about it because I didn't even know it was Super Bowl day. I don't think many of you are tempted in this way. But one of the things that sets us apart as Christians is the world sees that we act differently. So when they ask you, well, why are you watching the Super Bowl? You watched Super Bowl last night? No, I actually didn't. Why not? Well, it's the Lord's day. It's His day. If there's one thing I think that separates the church from the rest of culture today, one thing that we can gain back as a, as a people, as a church, that would set apart God as holy, it's sanctifying the Lord's day. Setting it apart as God told us to do in the very beginning of time for His own worship. So we come and we eat as much as we want like this crowd. We come and we eat the bread. We take all that Christ is going to give us. May we not go away from here 
and worship the idols of the world. And someday, these very, they don't care about the church. You think these people care about you? Can you imagine a Christian in Rome? Hey, after church, you want to go to the Colosseum? Oh yeah, sure, I'll go watch some Colosseum stuff. And only a few short years later, they were burning these same Christians in the Colosseum. The world doesn't care about you. Give us this day our daily bread. God is providing so bountifully for us. We owe Him allegiance. We owe Him worship. We owe Him our love. He provided for this crowd. He provides for us today. That doesn't mean Christians will never go hungry or be in pain or suffer, but we have the Word of God. We have God's holy Word. What else can we need? In Psalm chapter 19, we hear the exact same thing. If we have God and His Word, what more could we possibly need? Because the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. And then David says, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. You see, we think that in the world we can find satisfaction in all kinds of other things. There's nothing else. Nothing else that will satisfy. There are more important things in the world than the Super Bowl, or then comfort, or security, or entertainment, or property, or family. God and His Holy Word, and His commands. He's all we need. So let's conclude with this, verses 12 and 13. He told His disciples, after they had all eaten as much as they wanted, gather up the fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments of barley. In the midst of our problems, remember that nothing is wasted. It's not like it's taking way too long. God's just wasting time. He's not. He's not wasting a single amount of effort. He doesn't have effort, but He's not wasting anything. There's no work of the Lord that contains anything wasted. And that's encouraging for us. You might wonder, why is this taking so long, Lord? I've praying for years. Why is this not happening the way I want it to? Nothing's wasted. But the twelve baskets of leftover pieces are also a reminder of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The twelve tribes of Israel, the complete people of God. And in Romans 11, we read that this covenant includes us. And that His faithfulness and His covenant promises are directed to us as His church. We're also children of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. And many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. God's bounty toward His covenant people is never-ending. And every morning, great is His faithfulness to us. So let's summarize just the lessons we learned quickly. Number one, God is wise and powerful. He knows exactly what He's doing. Don't be discouraged. Trust Him. Look to Him first. Pass your check ride when the test comes. Trust Him and pray. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. He is the only one who can help. He's the only one who can help. He's your only hope. Whether in normal providence or in miraculous works in creation, He will help you. The majesty, the power, and the magnificence of this miracle show us that God is mighty to save. And it's meant to show us that nothing is too difficult for Him. He's the King. So to look to human solutions to our problems and ignore the only one who can really help is foolishness beyond measure. Trust in the Almighty God. Your good shepherd knows what he's doing and he knows what he's going to do already. Secondly, we see that God is a compassionate and kind provider. He's full of compassion, full of bounty for his people. He's merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
And He cares for us as children, as tender lambs. His loving kindness is new every morning, and it's better than life. He sings over His saints. He delights in His people. He came down to us and He was close to us. He didn't stay in heaven. He actually came to us. He's a good shepherd. He smells like the sheep. He was with us. He captures our tears and He holds them in a bottle. He hears the prayers of all of His beloved. He's gracious and compassionate. And you might not see it, but He's making you lie down in green pastures. He's restoring your soul. Thirdly, remember that God is all that you need. Not only will He provide your daily bread, He is your daily bread. He's what you need. You can gain the whole world and forfeit your very soul. To run after the world is to run after something that will pass away. But only the Son of God gives us eternal life. He has justified us and forgiven us, but He's also adopted us and made us His own children. So we come to Him for rest. We seek first His kingdom. We're to treasure Him more than the world's riches. He's the pearl of great price. He's the rose of Sharon. He's our provider. He's our King. He's our Messiah, our Savior. So really the whole purpose of the sermon is to lift up Christ that we might see Him clearly. And by seeing Him clearly, really the ultimate purpose of any trial as well is that we would see God more clearly and see ourselves more clearly. And when we comprehend His love, His overabounding love, that we would be changed. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank You so much that You have given us Your Word. We thank You that You have shown us this wonderful miracle, that You have shown us the purpose of this test for Philip. You've shown us also that there's no problem that's too big for You. You care for every little bit of our comfort. You care for each one of us more than we could ever understand or imagine. Help us to remember that when we face insurmountable problems, that we have a mighty Savior. He's powerful. He's eternal. And He loves us. Pray this.